Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to another episode of Not So Serious. Today, we'll be talking about the solar system. Underneath its seeming banality, our solar system is critically different from the rest of the universe in that we live in it. Unlike the rest of the universe, which we could not hope to explore in the foreseeable future, the solar system has been open to physical exploration for the last 70 years and observational exploration for millennia. It has been and continues to be an important testbed for scientific theories and has been used to confirm some of history's greatest theories. But before we get into today's episode, it's time to cover some interesting scientific news. Hello, my name is Taylor Gilchrist, the Everything Astronomy News Reporter. For today, we have an article by ESO in which they state that the Very Large Telescope has discovered evidence that six galaxies are orbiting around a supermassive black hole in the early universe. This came about when they noticed a cluster of galaxies surrounding the black hole along the cosmic spider web of gas. Some may ask what this so-called spider web may be, but Marco Mignoli, an astronomer at the National Institute of Astrophysics, may have the answer. Quote, the cosmic web filaments are like spider's web threads, end quote, explains Mignoli. The galaxies stand and grow where the filaments cross, and streams of gas available to fuel both the galaxies and the supermassive black hole can flow along the filaments. Most astronomers believe dark matter to be the key to these cosmic webs, and hope to use this theory to describe the early evolution of galaxies and supermassive black holes. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Everything Astronomy News. This is Taylor Gilchrist, signing off. So, the solar system seems simple in that we all learn about it in a, at a very young age, in middle school, and probably even elementary school, and then most people just stop thinking about it. And so this basic structure of a central sun being orbited by eight planets sticks with most people for their entire lives. But beneath this deceptively simple appearance, there's actually a lot of complicated stuff going on, and some really interesting stuff. For example... Mm, there, uh, outside of Neptune, there's this thing called the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is donut-shaped. Uh, and the donut is in the same plane as the other planets orbiting the sun. So all of the planets orbit the sun roughly on the same plane. And the Kuiper Belt lies on the same plane. But it, because it's a belt and it's a bit thicker, it's donut-shaped. And inside this donut, there is lots of gas uh well lots of dust especially and lots of ice and the the key feature of the the kuiper belt is that it is donut shaped well that is a key feature of it except it has been noticed that within this donut there are some objects that are moving that are not moving in the same plane as the other objects orbiting the sun and so that leads that for example tells us that there is something inside the kuiper belt upsetting these objects and this is why some scientists and some pretty eminent scientists are suggesting that there's probably a ninth undiscovered planet orbiting the sun that lives inside the kuiper belt were this planet to exist that would be a truly huge uh ramification in in the in the scientific field because not only does it tell us that what that 
you know, there could, there could be a hundred year lapse between us discovering the last planet and us discovering this new one. It's also a confirmation in some sense that the scientific method works because by questioning things that we thought might be established science, we're actually discovering new things, but more about this planet nine. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the main idea with the, the Kuiper Belt and planet nine is, um, even with the discovery of a, of a planet nine, it, it can also tell us a lot about the, the development of solar systems and the development of star systems. Um, you know, if you, if you think about, we, we might have mentioned in a previous episode about uh, star evolution. You know, you have, you have a, a star and a, a proto-disc full of dust. Um, but essentially, this Kuiper belt can represent that, that proto-disc worth of dust. It's just a lot of, you know, it's, it's dust, gas, ice, and... Uh, you know, a development of a planet nine that may be happening right now and is, is not necessarily full size. It can, it can tell us a lot about how planets might form in the early days of a star system where, yeah. you know, that, that entire belt worth of material is eventually being gravitationally pulled to one another. And then, it, you know, it's forming these planets that we, we might now just discover because they're, they're newer and harder to detect. Absolutely. And I mean, for example, I mean, just the very fact that all of the planets orbiting the sun lie in the same plane i mean even that is already tr somewhat astounding and also for example uh, something that most people probably don't think about is the fact that all of the, the planets orbit not only in the same plane but in the same direction mm. which tells us a lot about how the solar system evolved from nothing or just dust or the proto disk that tommy was talking about into the planets that we have and so mm, in some sense the the solar system is really a great way to look at how things evolve in space. Mm -hmm. It's a laboratory right in our backyard and we can you know, send, we've, for the past 70 years or so, we've sent spacecraft and even humans to explore that backyard of ours and we can apply what we learn there to other solar systems. And yeah, absolutely. That. And I mean, for example, even with liquid water for the longest time, you know, scientists thought that life was completely unique to earth and that there's water was really only on earth. And it's actually, by looking at our solar system that we discovered that water is really not unique to earth in any way, shape or form. Yeah. We know that there's, well, liquid water is a slightly different story, but at least for ice, for example, we know that there's ice on Mars because we've seen it. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there's ice on the moon because I think we haven't seen that. Mm, I don't know about, it. I actually don't know how we I know that there's ice on the moon, but I know there's ice on the moon. Right. Um, yeah. And there's ice in a whole bunch of places, which, you know, tells us stuff about how life might start. Maybe it tells us that water is really not that conducive to life and that you actually need lots of other criteria to be filled before you have and, a And uh, water just didn't spontaneously come to Earth. It came from the Kuiper Belt, which is home to short-term comets, or comets are like asteroids, but they're uh, are icy objects. And also, uh, they also came from the Oort cloud, which is even further out than the Kuiper Belt, and they cont it contains long-term comets on orbit of the sun. And so water is very prevalent, we think, the further we move out from the solar system, from all of those icy objects. Mm -hmm. And I mean, many people this this very summer saw a comet... Mm, Neowise. Neowise. Neowise uh, in their backyards and in the sky. And that looked really cool. Uh, that was the first comet I saw personally. That was very exciting. And comets are just these... They're just snowballs that come from probably the Kuiper belt and get thrown into the solar system and pass, you know, by the sun and as they get closer to the sun they the ice starts to melt mm -hmm. and it forms those really cool tails 
But an interesting fact about the tales that I learned actually pretty recently is that there's not one tale, but there's actually two tales. Uh, there's a dust tale and a gas slash ion tale. And so the, uh, the dust tale is just trails the movement of the comet. So the comet moves in a direction and the gas, the, the dust trail is directly behind it. But the ion trail, which is full of ionized gas, is actually pointing all it's is always pointing away from the sun which i thought was an interesting thing mm -hmm. and it's pointing away from the sun because of the solar wind which are these uh, high energy particles ejected from the solar surface that are blowing against the coma of the of the comet and blowing all the material backwards mm. and i'm not sure which one's more prevalent the dust tail or the do you know joe or the ion? i i'm not entirely sure i believe actually it's the the gas trail because every, well, at least in high school physics, and I think in maybe even uh, intro to college physics, you learn that a comet's tail is always pointing away from the sun. So I assume that they're talking about, well, given that they tell you that the tail is always pointing away from the sun and that the gas slash ion tail is always pointing away from the sun, I assume that's the more prevalent one or the bigger one. But I mean, even going back to the solar wind idea, um, so, uh, it's been theorized that the Kuiper belt is actually kind of dissipating and becoming less and less dense because solar wind is blowing through it and pushing things inside the Kuiper belt away, which is kind of cool to think that the sun is blowing wind throughout our solar system. Mm -hmm. I also think it's worth mentioning that with comets specifically from the Kuiper belt, like the way they get to near Earth orbit where we can see them is actually pretty cool. I was doing some reading on this where... I think I read that there's a region in the Kuiper Belt that's really close to Neptune within its gravitational field. And so what happens is Neptune kind of morphs this portion of the Kuiper Belt where it pulls these objects in. And then I think somewhere along the lines, these objects, they drift too far in. And then they get caught up in between Jupiter's and, and Neptune's, I believe, gravitational fields. And in that, they kind of get ripped apart. And so that's why you see a lot of dust inside the Kuiper Belt, as well as these comets, they, they just come in the gravitational field of Jupiter and they get pushed in. Yeah, because flyby, which is, I think really Neptune cool. is right at the border of the Kuiper Belt. Far out right. in Jupiter or in Neptune. Mm. And I mean, Plu to like, Pluto know, spends a large part of its orbit within in, inside the Kuiper Belt. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and so, and an interesting out. fact about Pluto, which is actually what one of the reasons why it was declassified from just a regular planet to a dwarf planet, mm -hmm. was because. Pluto's orbit is not circular. So mo all the, the eight real planets that we know of that are established um, has very circular orbits. But Pluto's orbit is actually very not circular. It's pretty oval. Um, and, and also, it doesn't lie in the same plane as all of the other planets do. So it's I think Pluto is or orbiting at like a 20... 20 degree angle compared to the yeah. other planets. But I, I think that I don't know if Pluto is declassified because of the ellipt super elliptical orbit. I mm -hmm. think it was the International Astronomical uh, like, uh, Union. IAS. Uh, yeah. Oh, IAU. The IAU. They came up with three distinct categories to define a planet, and there being one that a planet uh, must orbit the sun. Uh, number two is that it must have enough mass for it for its self-gravity to overcome the body forces so that it's, it's basically circular in shape or just approximately circular in shape. And also, and three, I think is the reason why Pluto is declassified, but it's, it has to clear its own path. 
And so with Pluto being amongst tons of other dwarf planets, similar in size, but not as large, and it being in the Kuiper belt with all these other objects, I think it just didn't clear its own path. And that's why- yeah, I, and I mean, Pl uh, Pluto spends, I think, a th about a third of its time being actually closer to the sun than Neptune is, because mm -hmm. Neptune has a really circular orbit, and Pluto actually crosses that orbit. Mm. Right. Uh, and so it spends a part of its time outside Pluto's orbit, uh, Neptune's orbit, but also a part of its time inside Pluto's orbit. And another thing, um, and I don't know if this is why it was declassified, but another unique thing about Pluto is that its center of gravity from its moon is outside Pluto's center. So yeah. to kind of explain what that means, or to kind of clarify what that means maybe, is... So, for example, the, the moon orbits the Earth, we know. Um, but And so that means that the Earth is gra uh, exerting a, a pull. Uh, it's exerting a gravitational force on the moon. However, the moon is also exerting a gravitational force on the Earth. And so what that means that there's is that there's actually a point where uh, there's a point that both, of the, both the Earth and the moon orbit around. Mm. And that point is, is actually within Earth's surface. So if you drew very care, if you drew to scale, or if you drew very carefully the moon going around the Earth, you would see that the, the Earth actually wobbles around this central point. But that central point is still contained within the Earth. And that's, that's the case for the seven other planets and their moons, but, not it, but that's not the case for Pluto. Pluto has a pretty big moon called Charon. Charon? Um, like that. <laughs> and the center of the orbit between Pluto and Charon is actually outside of Pluto. Mm. And so that makes Pluto kind of unique. And the theory that I read about today, which is apparently still very much a theory and not, not far from being proven, is that Pluto might be an ejected moon of Neptune. Mm. Which would make sense, for example, because there's a lot of patterns that Pluto does, doesn't obey. So we have, for example, the fact that the inner planets in the solar system are rocky and the outer planets are gaseous. But then all of a sudden we have Pluto being rocky again. Um, we have, you know, the, co the, 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 the fact that all the planets are coplanar, but that Pluto is not. The fact that all the planets are elliptical, the fact that Pluto is not, that they clear their own orbits, the fact that Pluto doesn't. And so... That, lets, that has led some scientists to believe that Pluto could just be an ejected moon of Neptune. Apparently, a big criticism of, criticism of that theory is that if you kind of look at the trajectory of Pluto and the trajectory of Neptune and you roll back the clock, it's, it's very hard to... Well, there is no time that Pluto and Neptune would have been in such togetherness. However, it's possible that, you know, Pluto is knocked out of orbit or something. It's possible that something similar happened, which would then lend credence to that theory. You can even, maybe I didn't see this anywhere, but since it has a, a second large moon that orbits it and it has four additional moons, one being named Styx after the uh, rock band. Um, Wait, maybe, after the rock band and not the river? No, S-T-Y-X. It's named after... But there's also a river in Greek mythology. Yeah, no, it's called it's named after the rock band. Oh, interesting. Um, but you could even maybe it was even broken up, and that could explain it was previously orbiting around Neptune and broken up. Perhaps. Mm. <clears throat> but talking about you know ejected objects and kind of going back to what Sam said with uh, you know comets in the Kuiper Belt, um, you know looking past Pluto, there there's been these theories of 
the Planet Nine, which you might have mentioned already, where which we had you know, mentioned already. Yeah, but <laughs> no, you know, you you have this object that's ejecting things out of the Kuiper Belt, and you know, Nep- Neptune's also causing these issues, but you know, having having this planet where it's it's ejecting objects out of the Kuiper Belt at different orbits, maybe that could also be a cause of of these comets, and maybe. Um, why some of these dwarf planets are having, uh, you know, irregular objects. Maybe, you know, Planet Nine is the biggest out of all of these planets, and you know, maybe Pluto and all the other dwarf planets are different subsects that are have to have to have, you know, interacted gravitationally with Planet Nine. Mm, I mean, the uh, the with the with Planet Nine, the with the theory of Planet Nine that you know was designed to explain the odd or the odd orbital patterns of some object in the, in, inside the Kuiper belt um, suggests that planet nine would be about 10 solar masses, which is apparently not solar masses, um, masses. 10 Jupiters, 10 earth masses, sorry, oh, earth masses, 10 earth masses, uh, solar, that would just be ridiculous. Be, <laughs> I'd be like, geez, but the, um, apparently that is, I, from what I read, the most common mass for planets is between five and 10 earth masses. So throughout the universe, that's the most common, um, common weight of, of planets. So they, I think again, they also expect it to be a gas planet, not a rocky planet. Hmm. But, yeah. and so again, that would, the, this planet nine might, the, I mean, the, the, it's the, the only problem with it is that it seems all very speculative at the moment. It yeah. just seems introduced to explain some things. But I mean, you know, complex numbers were introduced in the same way, and now they're pretty ubiquitous. So who knows? And, and the biggest question, oh, sorry, go ahead. The biggest question asked about Planet Nine is, well, if it exists, why haven't we discovered yet? And why are they looking? Why are they, you know, unsure about the models and showing that this could explain the the orbits of other objects in the Kuiper Belt? And the reason is because it's extremely difficult to observe something that faint. Given so, it's in the Kuiper, or it's actually. The planet nine is in the, what's called the scattered disk, which is part, it overlaps with the Kuiper Belt. So the Kuiper Belt is around uh, 30 astronomical, astronomical units or AUs to 50 AUs, which is one AU is 93 million miles. But the scattered disk. It's also disc, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Yeah. The scattered disk extends around up to 200 AUs, I think. And the scattered disk is what's really inclined, almost perpendicular to where all the planets orbit. And so that's what Joe was referencing earlier when he was talking about the objects that are super inclined compared to the orbit of our eight planets. And um, wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> the scattered disk. The... Yeah. I, was, I, was, I had a point to make. Yeah. Well, no matter, we'll come back to it. A really cool thing in the solar system is that the solar system allowed us to, well, to prove that general relativity was real. So, and that has nothing to do with Michael, with what Michael just said, um, just to be clear. It's completely different, but super cool. So when Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity, he basically predicted that, um, that mass bends space-time. Wait, did I say something wrong? I remember what I was going to say. No, I, was, I oh. remember what I was going to say. I was going to say that uh, because it's so far out from our, from our sun, it reflects so very little light that it's very hard to observe with telescopes and modern observation approaches. Mm. And so hopefully in the I future, mean, as we send out further, uh, more advanced telescopes, and we scan more of the night sky and look for these little deviations or these little uh, specks of light, which would indicate a possible planet, then perhaps we'll find it. But that's the reason we haven't found it. It's because it's extremely 
Yeah, I mean the the pictures of Pluto taken. The pictures of Pluto taken before what was it? New Horizon, New Horizon. flew by Pluto were horribly faint. It's I remember pixelated. Yeah, yeah, they were horribly pixelated. I mean, they couldn't have been more than like fifty pixels across, mm. and they were incredibly unclear. And they told us nothing. What I from just from looking at them, they told you nothing about what Pluto could look like. Um, right. Of course, now we've flown by it, so we know. But seeing things that are that far is very really is really quite difficult, right. especially different. given that these planets don't emit their own light. So right. I mean, and they don't cross in front of other light sources necessarily, because for example, when we observe exoplanets, one of the best ways that we have to look at exoplanets is either to look at stars and then see if anything crosses in front of that star mm -hmm. or to look at how the stars move. And so that tells us that there's probably something orbiting around those stars, but detecting right. the exoplanet itself is really incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for these really far objects because they don't emit their own light. And so they don't really cross in front of light sources, which means that it's really difficult. It's really hard to spot. It's really hard to spot a dark, dark object in the dark. Kind of right. like it's just impossible to find your phone at night or find your glasses when there's no light on. Right. And the development of telescopes and, you know, objects crossing one another also relates to what Joe was uh, about to mention about the, the confirmation of general relativity, wherein um, we were able to develop telescopes that were, were able to see the precession of Mercury in front of the sun. Mm. So maybe to explain um, what we, apparently what I've been told, um, is that scientists in at the, the in the late nineteenth century thought that physics was basically complete. We had discovered Maxwell's laws. You know, nearly everything could be explained. There were very very few things that couldn't be explained, and people thought that was just a matter of time, and that the existing frameworks were complete. So, except that apparently there um, there were still, as Lord Kelvin put it, there were still three big kind of like unknowns that people thought would just get would just get solved soon but weren't weren't quite solved one of those was black body radiation no one could no one could find no one could explain exactly why that why black body radi radiation behaved as as it does but a bigger well an equally important thing was um the fact that mercury's orbit processes so what that means is that mercury orbits in a roughly circular way but that the circle moves a little bit all the time and you know people just thought that 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 was going to be explained in some other way other you know in, in the same way that we've been able to explain the movement of every other planet and so for example they given that previously to explain these weird anomalies that they found with other objects they they just threw in a planet into the equation they did the same with mercury and so in the late 19th century there's a french astronomer who introduced the planet called vulcan um, what would later become Vulcan and Star Trek. But that was scrapped away when, as Joel described, general relativity was introduced. Mm. And so people thought that, you know, well, a scientist just this attributed this, this seeming procession of Mercury's orbit to experimental error at first. But then as, you know, telescopes got better and better and the measurements got better and better and the calculations and the error estimation got pretty good, we started to realize that, the precession of Mercury's orbit could really not be explained by the by the science of the time, or or by you know the mechanics of the time, if you will. And so in comes Einstein, who says, "Actually, cool thing, guys, matter curves space time." 
And essentially, uh, well, a prediction of that theory is that the sun bends space time around it. And so that leads you quite naturally to Mercury's orbit processes. And so that was a great explanation of that. And so Mercury's orbit was perhaps one of the reasons why we came up with general relativity. But then, you know, come time to prove to one of the, well, I think the biggest test of general relativity was showing that, um, that mass bends light. And so to do that, we use the sun. Mm. And I think this was in the 1920s. This was a very, very big experiment. Mm. It's like 1917, 1918. Yeah. And so during an an eclipse, we know that the sun gets obscured. And so it becomes dark. And what Einstein predicts is that that because the sun bends space-time, you might actually be able to see things that, that are behind the sun. Because the light, instead of going instead of being absorbed by the sun might actually bend around it and uh, come on and but normally it's really hard to see things that are behind the sun because the sun is so bright however come eclipse time in 1917 or 1918 uh because you know the sun just becomes dark all of a sudden you now have a, a platform to observe the stars perhaps that are behind it and that is what they saw during the eclipse they were able to see stars that they knew were actually behind the sun, but you were able to see them because the sun bent light. And so our own solar system and our sun were instrumental in proving Einstein right and proving that his theory of general relativity was in fact a correct explanation of what was going on. Mm. Another cool thing about the solar system is that, for example, it teaches us about how it teaches us about, you know, how things come about. As Tommy said, you know, how we moved from just dust and a proto-disc to um, to more sophisticated, to, you know, more nicer planets and a more orderly system. And one of the cool things with the solar system is that our star is right by. And unlike every other star, which is really far, our own sun appears really, really big. And so, for example, we've been able to study the sun in great detail. And because of that, we've been able to learn about how other stars work as well. Mm. And chief amongst those is discovering exactly what uh, radioactive processes are going inside the sun and what keeps our sun going. And so, for example, and so it was by observing our sun very closely that we discovered exactly what nuclear processes were happening. So, you know, the triple alpha process and uh, the helium helium fusion and all of right, those. The proton-proton chain, the CNO cycle. Mm-hmm. cycle. Yeah, all of those things. But, you know, looking at our own solar system, uh, you know, we, we, we have all these solved variables, but it also raises a lot of questions as, you know, we're pretty close to the sun, so we seem, you know, we're pretty confident that we know everything, you know, within you know, Jupiter's orbit, but looking further out, like the Oort cloud, we don't necessarily know what's going on out there. It's, it's very hard to see anything. We, we know it's, you know, a cloud of gas and dust and ice, you know, 10 to the power for astronomical units out, like 10,000 astronomical units out. You know, there, there's still a lot of questions that we, we have to answer considering even the Oort cloud is outside the, the sun's heliosphere. Yeah. And that's something we haven't even touched on is the Oort cloud. Yeah, it's so mysterious to us. There's trillions upon trillions of 
it's estimated to be trillions and trillions of icy objects, similar right. to the Kuiper Belt, just way out there. I mean, even more strange, we've mentioned that all the planets in, every, in the Kuiper Belt are on the, the same axis as everything else, but the Oort cloud is literally a, a spherical cloud that surrounds the entire solar system. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I mean, that makes some sense, you know, it makes sense that if the center of the solar system was denser than the outside, it would, it would be a lot quicker to form planets and, you know, to stabilize its orbits and all of that. However, I, this is a, I just thought of this, but does that mean maybe that, you know, given enough time that the Oort cloud will start to collapse and well, form more planets and become orderly like the center of the solar system? Hmm. I mean, that'd be interesting as we progress into studying other solar systems is, you know, seeing our solar system in the future by observing solar system thousands of light years away in the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, because right. our solar system teaches us about the present and so how solar systems might evolve, which then teaches us about how solar systems work far away. But it doesn't really tell it. But maybe if we then start studying solar systems far away, we can then take what we learn on learn on them and apply them here which would be sort of seeing cool, like historical cool snapshots yeah right. our past their future mm -hmm. solar system. and i mean the solar system is interesting as well because we can send probes out and so you know that's how we finally have detailed pictures of pluto but also uranus and neptune which are, are hard to take pictures of in general and for example and we've sent probes now i think as of two years ago we now have probes that are traveling outside the so outside the strict definition defined yeah i think the definition it, is like i know voyager one crossed in late 2012 i believe that crossed yeah. the heliopause and the heliopause is defined um where the solar pressure is equal to the interstellar medium on the other side oh so the so essentially that's saying that that's where the particle density inside the solar system becomes the same as it is just everywhere else in the in the world in the universe yep um and i mean now we have at least two sp uh spaceships or spacecrafts that are sent set for interstellar travel which means that they're going and they're going fast enough mm -hmm. such that they will never stop and never come back and they will always keep traveling on their lonely course mm. except the one thing is it doesn't really mean much for scientific progress because their main goals were to study planets in the outer solar system and there isn't much they can do now. I did. I do think they did send back data uh, occasionally and they did send the some important information. Yeah, and they did send important information back once it crossed over the heliopause so we could better understand exactly where this defining boundary is between our solar system and the interstellar medium on the outside. Mm. And I mean, we have, um, we have now imaged um, objects outside of Pluto, for example. So uh, New Horizon crossed by uh, an object that used to be called Ultima Thule, but has now been renamed. The name escapes me. Um, Is that the snowball one? It's, yeah, it's the snowman one. Snowman. Um, and it's basically, you will put a picture up, but it looks like two snowballs that have been stuck together. And it's about 30 kilometers, 20 miles long. Um, and th that's it, uh, interesting again, because it kind of tells us what might be floating around over in, in, the, in the Netherlands, in the far away. Um, and 
which, you know, it's always cool to know more, but it also tells us that it also might tell us, you know, where did Pluto come from? Maybe it tells us that there's actually way more planets out there. Maybe it's telling us the planet formation is actually occurring out there. And, and I think it crossed by Ultima Thule in, what was it, two years ago? And it came really very close to, to it. And not only are there thousands of undiscovered, if not millions, millions of undiscovered objects in the outer solar system, but even nearby to Earth, there are things called near-Earth objects that are asteroids uh, or comets that whiz by Earth all the time. And so like this past week in the news, uh, astronomers caught, or amateur astronomers caught on their telescopes, a meteorite striking the top of Earth's surface and bouncing back up because it came in, in at a shallow angle. But that's not the case all the time. Many of the times, if, if large enough, those objects will pass through as it did a few years back in uh, some city in Russia and actually you know, cause destruction on the surface of Earth. And so it is- Yeah, that, that was in Siberia. It is quite scary. Oh, that's, that's the Tungangsta incident in like 1910s. But there was one more recently. I think that was also in Siberia. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I mean, yeah, we do have our, our atmosphere to protect us. So it's yeah, not like, but, yeah, but, right. but all the time hit us. Like we are protected to a certain extent. But there's, <laughs> there's always, uh, there's every once in a while there are occasions where something comes, you know, within a reasonable distance of the earth or the moon and astronomers or the telescopes that track these near earth objects are like, Oh, by the way, there's this object coming by. It's not going to hit us, but it's coming fairly close. Na right. Namely the aforementioned comet Neowise mm -hmm. um, and also Muamua, which we can mm -hmm. touch on in a second, but Neowise was a full comet and we only dis we had no idea that it existed uh, until a couple months before it was set to come by earth. And there was actually, I Neowise is a shocking property in the sense that we know now from looking at how it moves that Neowise has an orbital period of, I think it's five or 7,000 years. But what that means though, is that Neowise has come by earth before and it came back. And the most thing that I, the thing that I find completely mind boggling is that 5,000 years ago, humans were around. You know, the Egyptians were building their pyramids. There were tons of people doing their thing. And the night skies were really dark back then. So that means that people back then, back then definitely saw that saw Comet Neowise come by. And it just got, er somehow it got erased from the repository of human knowledge. Somehow humans knew that this thing existed and nothing came of it. Probably it wasn't a way was to forgotten. record it. Yeah, there probably wasn't a way to record it, or they probably didn't understand right. what it was. Yeah, or maybe it was recorded and it got that got lost or something. But right. I find it, I find it truly amazing that humanity knew something and then just forgot it, and then we rediscovered it five thousand years later. Five thousand to seven thousand years from now, if we're still around as a human species on Earth, like when it comes back around, and they're thinking back to us, like, oh, why didn't someone record it? But we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if, if for some reason, like the internet becomes obsolete or like the, you know, the cloud gets wiped for some reason, you know, like no one's ever going to remember. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's definitely, that, that's, yeah. that's how many generations away? Hundreds? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just how many. <laughs> Actually not that many though, because it, if let's say that a human generation is every like 25 years to make the math easy, that means that you have, four generations every century 40 generations a millennia so really five so you're only at 200 generations away mm -hmm. uh five which is not that much you know 
I, in some sense, like so I like great. I like you to name one person that you know from two hundred generations away. Well, I couldn't because those people lived in pyramids, and I don't know those. Yeah, exactly, dude. The people in the future are gonna think we're living in like pyramids too. Maybe, although for I don't know. For all you know, they could be like pyramids, underground though. mole people. Well, um, but who's to say we know what's gonna happen? Yeah, yeah. to go back to Oumuamua though, because that was cool. Um, Oumuamua was this long rectangular object, cigar shaped. Cigar shaped, yeah. That parallel, parallelopiped shaped. Yeah, I think yeah, that's the term. Yep. Um, and that like came into the solar system and then just left. And it's thought that that was maybe, well, that is the first recorded interstellar traveler, if you will. So that means that this cigar shaped object, which um, I don't actually know exactly how big it was, um, but it means that this cigar shaped object came from not our solar system, visited for a brief period of time and just left. Um, and Oumuamua was, and so the cigar shape was actually t kind of tumbling into our solar system. So it was not just traveling in a cool, sleek way. It was kind of rolling around. That's why it was also picked up by a lot of conspiracy people. Yeah. Because, yeah, of, the, because of how it tumbled, then it seemed very not natural. Right. And I mean, some It's people, a cigar shape to begin with. Like most people think like objects are, aren't, aren't very parapet. Para Piped shape, parallel piped shape, or whatever, whatever Joe, mm -hmm. <laughs> Joe called it earlier. But like a cigar isn't normally what you expect from just a, a random rock, you know? Yeah, and I mean, apparently it it did it did display signs of quote, quote unquote non gravitational acceleration, which is probably just uh, saying that Amuamua lost weight or something along the way, or right. it interacted with something or something happened. Right. But some some people's uh, picked up on that and thought, huh, that must mean that it's an alien spaceship, which I, I suppose the probabilities of that happening are non-zero, probably. It was also the, the small shape, because I, I just pulled it up here on my other screen. It says it was about 3,000 feet by 40 or 400 and feet. And we can pull up an image, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I mean, we, yeah, but I mean, 3,000 feet is very, very long. It's long, but in not, the context not for, of objects in space. Yeah, space yeah, objects. Yeah. Like, if you think about it, it's not longer than like, you know, a couple dozen city blocks put together. Yeah. Mm. So, in conclusion, Oumuamua, maybe right. an interstellar visitor from somewhere. Well, definitely an interstellar visitor, but maybe with people on board. Yeah, but but I, I think I think both of those examples, Oumuamua and Neowise, just show like you know we're studying all these objects and there's theorized objects but then there's still things that we have no idea are coming you know every day on the news you can see oh you know a meteor near past earth and you think well is this going to be it? like are we going to turn to the next dinosaur generation you know <laughs> but uh, there, there's these objects that are just appearing all over the solar system that we we had no idea existed and then all of a sudden they're close enough where we accidentally pick them up and the unfortunate thing with these objects too is that we can only observe them and understand them for so long before they disappear out of sight. And so Oumuamua quickly passed into our solar system and is already out of our solar system and outreach yeah. from our observatories. And I think it further shows that like there's so much more to learn from our own backyard, which is right. our solar system, right? Just crazy. There, we don't know much. Yeah. And we're looking into all these different areas of space that are so far away that we realistically can't ever get to. And yet there's all this evidence and all this information in front of us now that we can look into and mm -hmm. hopefully use for those things that are further out that we can't really mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to take a more of a historical perspective at this and at our solar system, thinking back to, 
you know, the Renaissance times when the solar system is being heavily studied by astronomers, including Galileo or Copernicus. And we thought we had a fundamental, fundamental understanding of what our solar system was. You know, before Copernicus and Galileo, we thought that Earth was, it was geocentric, the model where Earth is at the center of not only our solar system, but also our universe. And from there, we transitioned into the Copernicus model where all of a sudden uh, the sun is at the center. And then we start discovering all these little objects, we call them planets. And we say, okay, as it's the same structure we learned about, as Joe was mentioning earlier, when we're a young you know, student in elementary school or middle school, or we have the sun at the center and the eight planets or so orbiting it. But history has proven that it's extremely, extremely more complicated than that. And there's still so many discoveries yet to be made about our solar system. I mean, namely, and I don't want to drag it on too long, but namely the life on Venus thing, which recently mm -hmm. came out, scientists said, right. you know, we found traces of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. And it's pretty cool. Like, there's yeah. that's pretty no cool. explanation for phosphine in an abiotic mm -hmm. uh, context. Abiotic means there's no life. I learned yeah, that word, but... Phosphine is <laughs> uh, definitely an organic compound that can only be made like in, yeah. in non-natural non ways. In a life. general context, it just means that Maybe. they found life perhaps on Venus, there has to be some kind of biological process that had to have made that phosphine, whether Which it was on crazy. Venus or somewhere else. Although there are, so to give a, I'm sure people listening to this have heard on all the other astronomy podcasts within the past, ever since the news broke out, right. um, that it was discovered phosphine in small amounts though, about 20 parts per billion. But that's still, but it's still larger right. than quantity than, yeah. than we can detect on earth at mm -hmm. some points. And, so, yeah. but they did say that, they did test it against other ways it could be formed that are non-biological. And so it is formed in the really high density depths of Jupiter. It's been found or uh, like detected. Um, and what's really interesting is that Jupiter or Venus is basically a runaway greenhouse um, earth where it's uh, the, the clouds are sulfuric acid, acid or in, include sulfuric acid in its composition. And the surface is so hot that, you know, and so dry that life, as we know it can't survive on its surface but over the years of studying venus uh or the venusian atmosphere scientists have discovered that there's this layer i think it's between around 20 kilometers above its surface and 60 kilometers that there's this temperature range from um, around zero degrees fahrenheit to 200 degrees fahrenheit where if the temperature and conditions conditions are correct that some form of biological life could survive as we know it and what's really interesting is that there's this layer and that the phosphine wasn't discovered on the surface. It wasn't discovered at the upper atmosphere. It was discovered somewhere within this layer. And so that's really interesting, the, the implications. And I'm interested to see over the next you know, year or so, the follow-up observations yeah. and to see if there's an error in the, in the, uh, the original paper and to kind of narrow in on what the possibilities could be for phosphine being in the atmosphere. So I think it's safe to say the solar system is cool. Don't think it's established science. And thank you for listening. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. This is Michael. This is Sam. This is Tommy. And this is Joe. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure to leave a review. All of the show notes can be found either in the description below or on our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Everything Astronomy.